So let's begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this chance to be together. We thank you for this technology that enables us to do that, even though it makes us crazy sometimes. We thank you for the gift of this book, Mere Christianity. Lord, we pray that you would help us to absorb the wisdom that comes from your word, your scriptures, and the way that Lewis expresses that truth uh, in a way that is designed to be more accessible to us. Lord, we thank you for the impact of this book um, since the time that it was written and the many lives who have been changed through the intervention of your Holy Spirit using this book. And Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, that whatever you might want to speak to us, we would have ears that are ready to hear. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I would like for us to begin, as usual, by saying together our scripture verse from Second Peter. And as I always say, this is a verse that makes me want to preach a sermon every time. But I want you to just notice about all of the things that have been granted to us. That word granted is used several times in here. And a grant is something that you don't necessarily deserve. It's something that's just given to you. So let's say this together. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Such a great verse. And I want to say a warm word of welcome to uh, anybody who's new uh, tonight, either on Zoom or following us on YouTube. Uh, one of the great things is that people have been telling their friends, and so uh, we have new folks every week. So just a word of orientation if you're new and you're not quite sure what you've gotten into. Um, there are three ways of approaching this class. The first one is what I call being on the beach. That means you just appear when you feel like it. You don't really do anything. Um, you could be watching Netflix uh, with your earphones if you wanted to, um, but you're here and you're just gonna kind of get what you get. Um, we're delighted to have you, regardless of whether you're gonna read anything or not, we're just glad you're here. Those of you who are snorkeling are paying attention to the parts that you find interesting and reading extra things that I send out on those things that you find interesting, but not on every single thing that comes along. And then there are the scuba divers. The scuba divers are the ones who are uh, possibly as much of a nerd as I am, who really like going down the rabbit hole um, into detail and doing a deep dive on a lot of these things. And so I'm delighted to have you if you are a scuba diver. But whichever of those levels you choose, or if you want to move back and forth, depending on how busy you are, it's all good. We're just glad you're here. I do want to encourage you, if you're new, um, to Google St. Philip's Church Charleston uh, and find our website and send me an email so I can get you onto our email list. I send a summary out each Tuesday of the class the week before, along with links to some of the resources that we've talked about. And particularly if you're snorkeling or scuba diving, that will be a big help. I also want to just recommend 
about how to read this book. Those of you that have been on for a while with this class know um, that the uh, book originated as broadcast talks in World War II. And so there was a 15 minute talk uh, that was broadcast and then there was a week before the next one. And that gives us a good clue about how Lewis wants us to read here. Um, just do one chapter at a time. Reading out loud is a great way to do this. Uh, the C.S. Lewis doodle is also a great help if you're trying to follow and understand. So uh, as usual tonight, we have some music and I'm gonna play it and you can see if you have any idea what this is. This is slightly less obscure than some of the other things that we've had. So uh, if you think you know, um, you can send a chat. Okay, I'm not getting any takers. Oh, I just see some now. Let's see. Yes! So we've got two really good guesses, um, and they are both sort of right. One of them is really right, and one is partially right. Um, the guesses are Sing My Tongue, The Glorious Battle, and Thomas Aquinas. And the tune that we were listening to is called Panja Lingua, and it's one of the great... Uh, medieval chant tunes and the sing my tongue the glorious battle is one of the most ancient hymns in Christendom that was written in the 500s uh, by Venantius Fortunatus who was one of the great Christian poets and intellectuals and philosophers in the 500s and it is a beautiful hymn about what Jesus did on the cross and it's traditionally sung on Good Friday and in the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas reworked some of the lyrics, uh, but kept that same tune uh, to come up with a different hymn, Now My Tongue, The Mystery Telling of the Glorious Body Sing, uh, which is about uh, the gift of the sacrament of communion. Uh, but it is a particularly appropriate hymn um, for us to look at tonight because this chapter is going to talk about what Jesus did on the cross. But when you get the link, um, this particular hymn, the recording that I've selected of it, is part of a larger work that's called The Passion According to St. Mark by a composer named Charles Wood. And it was commissioned in 1920, right at the end of World War I, by Eric Milner White, who was the chaplain at King's College, Cambridge, who had been a chaplain in the trenches of World War I, was 
coming back to Cambridge where uh, about a third of the student body had died in the trenches of World War I, and it was great gloom. And he decided they needed the hope of Jesus, and so he created a service of lessons and carols that told the story of God's plan of salvation. So all the lessons and carol services that we have came from that one that Eric Milner White did in 1918. But Charles Wood was part of the Cambridge community. He was a brilliant musician, and his only son at the age of 20 had died in World War I. And Eric Milner White reached out to him and asked Wood to do this composition of this Passion According to St. Mark, and he wove it around Sing My Tongue, The Glorious Battle. So as we get ready to start the season of Lent next week, it's a great thing to listen to. So moving right along, just some context for those who are new. Um, this book is written in the worst and darkest part of World War II in London. The BBC, the headquarters where Lewis is going to record these talks each week, is one of the major targets of the Luftwaffe. Uh, it's bombed multiple times, on fire multiple times. Lewis is climbing over gas bags, uh, gas bags, sandbags, and looking at the, the skies that are full of flames as he's going to record these. And we talked about the pivotal role of Jimmy Welch, the BBC Director of Religious Broadcasting, who broke all tradition by having a layperson give these talks. And we talked about the RAF and the pilots and Lewis working with these soldiers to try to instruct them um, in the Christian faith and realizing he needed a new vocabulary to talk to these folks. And that really helped him with mere Christianity. So the first book, the first series of talks, Right and Wrong is a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. Lewis said, no one cares about what Jesus did until they realize that they are sinners. If you think that you're awesome and that everything is right in the world, then Jesus doesn't have too much to say to you. But Lewis realized that everyone wonders about the meaning of life. Where did people come from? How did the universe, how did the cosmos get here? And he starts not with religion, but observable facts about that. And he talks about the law of human nature, two key points that humans know the law of human nature, what we ought to do, but we break that law. And he says the standard that measures between right and wrong has to be something different than either of those. And he says this law is very curious because it's not like other natural laws. The law of gravity tells you what stones do if you drop them. A stone does not have a choice about whether it's gonna fall when you drop it off of a tower. It can't decide to sprout wings and fly off into space. It has to drop to the ground. That's all that it can do. But the law of human nature is different because there's something that we ought to do, but we often choose not to do it. And Lewis says the key realization is that after you've realized there is a real moral law and there's a power behind that law that made the universe and that you've broken that law and you're on the wrong side of that power, that it's after that that Christianity really begins to talk. So that's sort of the point of book one. And this whole book is a sustained argument, which is why we always review, because it's important to know what's come before, because Lewis is building a little each week. 
So that first book about right and wrong is a clue to the meaning of the universe uh, is so important because it reminds us of this great quotation uh, from Jimmy Welch to Lewis in 1941 about why these programs are so important. In a time of uncertainty and questioning, it's the responsibility of the church to declare the truth about God and his relation to men. It has to expound the Christian faith in terms that can be easily understood by ordinary men and women and to examine the ways in which that faith can be applied to present-day society during these difficult times. And my friends, that is every bit, if not more, true today than it was then. And we who are believers must learn how to communicate the faith to be translators of spiritual truth, as Lewis is here. And we've talked about how important it is that we recover the idea of gospel humility, not looking down our noses and judging those who differ from us, but instead remembering that we are all beggars at the foot of the cross, and we're the ones that have been lucky enough, blessed enough to know where the bread is. And our job is to show that to others. We also talked about the power of story and beauty and transcendence to get around what Lewis called the watchful dragons of the mind, people who think they have no use for Christianity. But when they're exposed to a story like the Lord of the Rings or the power of a beautiful building or a beautiful piece of music, they sense there's something more to life than just the material. So the second book that we're in right now, Lewis wrote these chapters in the worst part of World War II. London and the rest of England are being bombed regularly. The German troops are massing to invade England. And the United States has pretty much said we're not going to enter the war. England is standing alone. And so as Lewis considered that, and many people thought the end of the world was coming, uh, the truth of what Christians believe became even more important. So in this book, the first chapter of the second book about what Christians believe, Lewis talks about the rival conceptions of God. There's a great little part um, in an animated movie uh, about this called A Bug's Life uh, that I would commend to you sometime. There's a scene about worship in there that's really powerful, and it reminds us that since the beginning of time, people have had the urge to worship. And Lewis says, when you become a Christian, it doesn't mean you have to believe that all other religions are totally wrong. He says, in fact, all other religions have echoes of truth, but Christianity is the only one that has the fullness of truth. It's the only one that can save. He contrasts religious and atheistic views and says the majority of people since the beginning of time have been religious in one way or another and that atheism has always been a minority viewpoint. He then talks about pantheism versus the Christian view of God. We don't hear a lot about pantheism today, um, but it's actually all around us. The whole idea that there's no such thing as right and wrong, that it just depends on your perspective, that is actually an argument from pantheism. Uh, so Lewis says the big question that he faced while he was still an atheist that used to really bother him was if a good God made the world, why has it gone wrong? And he said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. 
But one day the light dawned and Lewis realized, how had I got this idea of just and unjust? If the whole universe really had no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. So we talked about myths and types and shadows, these stories that are scattered all over cultures and through the scriptures of echoes that point towards something that's coming, and that something finds its fullness in Jesus Christ. And we talked about how Lewis is very insistent about the importance of absolute truth, that absolute truth is an essential building block of a biblical worldview. So the second chapter, Lewis calls the invasion, which was a great title um, to get people's attention because remember they were expecting to be invaded at any moment by the Germans. So what Lewis says here is that things that are real are not simple. They look simple, but they're not. And he uses the example of a table. And he says a table looks simple, but when you start exploring it scientifically and think about the atoms and molecules that make it up and the positive and negative charges within those that are literally holding the matter of the table together, and then the forces and the cantilevering of the weight and everything else, that that simple table is actually really complicated. And he says that reality in his experience is usually odd. It's not neat. It's not obvious, it's not what you would expect. And he uses for the example of that the solar system, that we don't have planets that are all exactly alike, equidistant from the sun, but planets that are wildly different from each other. And he says, reality is something you usually couldn't have guessed. And he says, that's one of the reasons I believe Christianity, it is a religion you could not have guessed. If you were gonna make up a religion, the idea that the God of the universe would choose to become part of his creation and be born in poverty in a manger in a backwater province of an empire, that's crazy. So that is not what you would expect to happen, but it is exactly what God did. Lewis then goes on to talk about intelligence and will. And here he's distinguishing Christianity from dualism, dualism being the idea that there's a bad power and a good power, and they're just always fighting each other. And Lewis says part of the problem with that is that existence, intelligence, and will are things that are good in and of themselves. They can be twisted into bad things, but at their origin, at their root, they are good. So. He says the dark power would have to get these things from the good power. Even to be bad, he must borrow or steal from his opponent. Evil is a parasite, not an original thing. It doesn't have an independent existence. Evil can only be defined when we know what the good is. Lewis then goes on to say it was very surprising to him that the New Testament talks so much about this dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit that's behind death and disease and sin. And he says the difference is Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God, was good when he was created, and then went wrong. And so he concludes with this, enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, 
and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you're really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. When you hear that scripture, when you hear the sermon, the word of God preached, that's why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. He does it by playing on our conceit and laziness and intellectual snobbery. So one of the things Lewis is saying here is that one of Satan's chief aims is to stop us from going to church and being involved in it by playing on our conceit and laziness and snobbery. Because if we're absent from church and we're absent from the word of God, we're falling into the enemy's hands. So that brings us to chapter three. This is one of the most important chapters in the book. So if you missed last time, I would strongly urge you to go back and watch um, the video of last class. Um, this is a foundation stone chapter, so I'm gonna go through it in a little more detail than usual. So chapter three, the shocking alternative. Christians believe an evil power has made himself for the present the prince of this world, and that raises problems. Is that in accordance with God's will? Would God let the evil power be in charge? It seems he would be a strange God to do that. But if that's not the case, then how could it happen contrary to his will if he really has absolute power? So Lewis goes on to explore the nature of authority and says anyone who's been in authority knows how a thing can be in accordance with your will in one way and not in another. And he uses the example of the mother who's trying to teach the children to clean up after themselves. And she tells them that she's not going to go clean up everything every night. And they have to learn to keep it tidy on their own. So when you walk in and you look in their toys and clothes strewn all over everywhere, that's not the mother's will, but it's her will that has left the children free to be untidy. So Lewis then says, God created things which had free will. If a thing is free to be good, it's also free to be bad. And free will is what makes evil possible. And God gave free will because free will is the thing that makes evil possible, but the more important reason is that it's the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of robots, of creatures that work like machines would hardly be worth creating. The happiness God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight, and for that they must be free. And we used the example last week, which I'm sure Lewis would have used if these had existed when he wrote this book, but remember back to those dolls that have the little string that you pull on the back? and you pull the little string and the doll looks at you and says, I love you, and it's so cute and all of that, but does that actually make you feel loved? Probably not, uh, because you know that it doesn't have a soul. The only reason it said that is because you pulled a little string and the whole thing is a fake. So Lewis is saying here on a much grander scale that God left us free because that's the only way that you can actually love. So God took this risk. He knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way, but he thought it was worth the risk. If God thinks this state of war in the universe a price worth paying for free will, 
that is from making a live world in which creatures can do real good or harm and something of real importance can happen instead of a toy world that only moves when he pulls the string, then we may take it, it is worth paying. Then he talks about the dark power. He says, the moment you have a self at all, there's the possibility of putting yourself first, wanting to be the center, wanting to be God, in fact. I'm sure none of us have ever felt that way. However, that was the sin of Satan, and it was the sin he taught the human race in the Garden of Eden. Satan put the idea in their heads that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they'd created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And boy, does that describe exactly where our culture is right now. And then I love this part. God made us, invented us as a man, invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. That's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. So this wrong fuel idea means that every time we think we're going to be able as a human race or a country to be able to pull ourselves out of all of our problems, some fatal flaw always brings the selfish and cruel people to the top and everything slides back into misery and ruin. So God has seen this over the ages and he did three things. He left us conscience, the sense of right and wrong. He sent the human race what Lewis calls good dreams, those strange stories scattered through all heathen religions about a God who dies and comes to life again, and who by his death has somehow given new life to men. And then he selects one particular people, uh, that old phrase, how odd of God to choose the Jews. God chooses this one particular people in this backwater area and spent several centuries hammering into their heads what kind of God he was. But then comes the real shock, the shock that Lewis puts in the title. He says, among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who claims to forgive sins. He says he has always existed, and he says he is coming to judge the world at the end of time. And when you've grasped that Jesus meant that he was the being outside the world who had made it, you will see that what this man said was the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. And it is indeed. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, understood that. When Jesus said, what is easier to do, to say, rise, take up your, your mat and walk, or my son, your sins are forgiven. He tells the man to rise, take up his mat and walk uh, to prove that he has the power. But the Pharisees have been saying all along, this is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
So Jesus told people their sins were forgiven. He unhesitatingly believed as if he would, behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. And then we get to the culmination, the liar, lunatic, or Lord trilemma. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And we talked about how this formulation also shows up in Narnia uh, when the professor is talking to the children in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe about why they don't believe Lucy when she's gone to Narnia. They believe Edmund when Edmund says it wasn't real. And said, logic, said the professor, why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she's mad, or she's telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies. It's obvious she's not mad. For the moment then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume she's telling the truth. All through that story, Lewis uses the white witch as a foil to Aslan and an exemplar of the argument that the white witch is not trustworthy. It turns out that she is a liar, that what she says is not true, whereas Aslan is exactly the opposite. So this trilemma has been continually used in Christian apologetics uh, since the publication of Mere Christianity. Um, someone asked last week where in the Church Fathers has showed up, and I put that in the email. Victorinus, back in the 300s, uh, was one of the first people uh, to cite this, and that argument was called Out Deus, Out Malus Homo. So that idea has been around for a while, but Lewis probably put it in its easiest to understand form. And there's been some pushback against it, mostly from people who don't really believe that the Gospels are accurate, and they want to put an additional choice in there saying that it's a mystery or that it was a legend. And I want to just uh, recommend to you a little resource. Uh, this, particularly if you're a scuba diver, um, this book, Can We Trust the Gospels, is absolutely fantastic. It is short. It is, even with the index, 150 pages. Uh, it's not long, but it is one of the best arguments about the reliability and integrity of the Gospels and why we can trust them that you could ever see. And the man who wrote it is an absolute genius polymath, much in the mold of Lewis, Dr. Peter Williams, uh, who has multiple degrees from Cambridge in biblical languages. He is the world authority on New Testament Greek. 
He heads the International Greek New Testament Project. He was one of the people that oversaw the ESV translation of the Bible. Um, he is the president, the principal of Tyndale House at Cambridge. Uh, he has lectured on Hebrew at the University of Cambridge. He was the senior lecturer in New Testament at the University of Aberdeen. I think he's about 45. It's just not fair. But it's a great book. Um, I commend that to you. So moving on at last um, to tonight's chapter, which is entitled The Perfect Penitent. And Lewis starts off by saying there are alternatives that we need to look at. He says, this man, Jesus, we are talking about either was and is just what he said or else a lunatic or something worse. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. God has landed on this enemy-occupied world in human form. That is an amazing thing. Lewis elsewhere says this is the greatest miracle of all miracles. And another little book plug that I plugged before, Athanasius on the Incarnation. If you're scuba diving, read this book. Even if you're not, you might want to get it and just read a few paragraphs. Um, we have lost our sense of wonder about how incredible it is that Jesus entered our world, and we need to reclaim that. So Lewis then moves on and says, why did Jesus come? He came to teach, of course, and we've been talking about that at St. Philip's the past two weeks in the sermons about how Jesus said he came to preach that that's his most important activity. But in the New Testament, you will find that they are constantly talking about something different, not about Jesus's teaching, but about his death and his coming to life again. It is obvious that Christians think the chief point of the story lies here. They think the main thing Jesus came to earth to do was to suffer and be killed. Now that is extraordinary. And if you read through the gospels, you'll notice, for example, in the gospel of Mark, fully a third of the gospel of Mark deals with the last week of Jesus's life. A third, just with that one week. And the other Gospels, the emphasis is similar. There's so much about that last week, about Jesus's death on the cross uh, for our salvation. And again, that hymn that we listened to at the beginning, that's exactly the point of it. So Lewis says here, the central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Many different theories have been held as to how it works. What all Christians are agreed on is that it does work. If you are tired and hungry, a meal will do you good. But the modern theory of nourishment, all about the vitamins and the proteins, is a different thing. People ate their dinners and felt better long before the theory of vitamins was ever heard of. And if the theory of vitamins is someday abandoned, they will go on eating their dinners just the same. Theories about Christ's death are not Christianity. They are explanations about how it works. 
We believe that the death of Christ is just that point in history at which something absolutely unimaginable from outside shows through into our world. And if we cannot picture even the atoms of our of which our own world is built, we are not going to be able to picture this. Indeed, if we found that we could fully understand it, that very fact would show that it is not what it professes to be. The inconceivable, the uncreated, the thing from beyond nature, striking down into nature like lightning. So you may ask, what good is it if we don't understand it? A man can eat his dinner without understanding exactly how food nourishes him. A man can accept what Christ has done without knowing how it works. We are told that Christ was killed for us, that his death has washed out our sins, and that by dying he disabled death himself. That is Christianity. Any theories we build up as to how Christ's death did all this are quite secondary. Mere plans are diagrams to be left alone if they do not help us, and even if they do help us, not to be confused with the thing itself. So, of course, what Lewis is talking about here is theories of what Christians call the atonement. He's talking about theories of the atonement. And if you want to get really far off into a lot of arcane and speculative language with a lot of Greek words and uh, polysyllabic uh, English words that no one ever uses in real conversation, um, get into a big discussion on theories of atonement. And as Lewis says, it's important. It's maybe the most important thing. But for us as humans to make ourselves nuts trying to figure out exactly how it works is not the point. The point is to worship. The point is to follow. It's much like that old uh, quotation from one of the great German theologians when someone asked him to sum up out of his great knowledge what he thought was the most important nugget of theology that he could share with the world. And he says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's exactly what Lewis is getting at here. Um, I will say for those of you that have a theological bent um, that what Lewis is really talking about here is penal substitutionary atonement. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. Forget I ever said that out loud. Um, but it's important because there's a lot of pushback against that right now um, in the uh more liberal realms of the Episcopal Church, there have been a number of bishops that have come out and said the atonement itself, the idea that Christ died on the cross as a blood sacrifice for our sins, that that is an outmoded and offensive theory that needs to be replaced by something else. Well, that is a bold statement, because if you replace the atonement, you don't have Christianity anymore. Um, I do want to say, let me just get something off the shelf. If you really want to learn about this, this is a great book. Um, it is by Thomas Torrance, and it's called Atonement. Um, however, unlike the other book, 
This one is 700 pages long and has little tiny type and lots and lots of footnotes. If you're really a nerd, um, you might enjoy this. It's a very fine book. Um, but as Lewis says, it doesn't really matter whether we understand it. It's just like you don't need to understand the entire process of the way taste works to appreciate why a fine sauterne together with a slightly warmed foie gras is one of the great culinary combinations in the entire world. You don't have to understand the chemistry of it. You don't really even need to know where the foie gras or the sauterne came from. You just know that it is an amazing coupling together. So much the same way with the atonement, that it is a gift to us. It's like the Trinity. It is something to be worshipped and adored and appreciated, but not to um, make ourselves crazy trying to understand just how it works. So Lewis gives a little bit of background here. He says, any theories we build up as to how Christ's death did all this are, in my view, quite secondary. Mere plans or diagrams to be left alone if they do not help us. And even if they do help us, not to be confused with the thing itself. All the same, some of these theories are worth looking at. The one most people have heard is the one I mentioned before, the one about our being let off because Christ had volunteered to bear a punishment instead of us. That's penal substitutionary atonement. Now, on the face of it, that is a very silly theory. If God was prepared to let us off, why on earth did he not do so? And what possible point could there be in punishing an innocent person instead? None at all that I can see if you're thinking of punishment in the police court sense. On the other hand, if you think of a debt, there's a plenty of point in a person who has some assets paying it on behalf of someone who has not. Or if you take paying the penalty, not in the sense of being punished, but in the more general sense of standing the racket or footing the bill, then of course it is a matter of common experience that when one person has got himself into a hole, the trouble of getting him out usually falls on a kind friend. And that leads Lewis to talk about the hole that we are in. We are all of us sinners. And because of that, we are in a hole. And it's not an easy little hole. It's a deep, dark hole that we can't get out of on our own. Lewis says, now, what was the sort of hole man had gotten himself into? He had tried to set up on his own to behave as if he belonged to himself. In other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. I want to just pause there. This is so important. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. And this is one of the areas where there's the biggest clash in worldviews in our culture right now. Because there are a lot of people in our culture that think if we just try harder and we're a little nicer, we spend more money on certain things, um, that we will improve and suddenly everyone will be kind and everything will be great. But what Lewis is saying and what the scriptures teach 
is that that's impossible because we have rebelled against the only one who can save us. We are rebels who must lay down our arms. Bishop Salmon, who was the Bishop of South Carolina um, some 20 years ago, was a brilliant and godly man. And he used to talk about the fact that Christianity is a faith of repentance, of confession, repentance, and conversion. Confession, repentance, and conversion. But that what is often peddled as Christianity is a religion of affirmation and indiscriminate inclusivity. And he said those two things could not be more opposite. Because if you refuse to believe that you're a sinner, if you refuse to believe that you've rebelled against God, as Lewis has said earlier, Christianity has nothing to say to you. It is not um, a get better club. It's not the United Way. Um, it is a faith that requires confession, repentance, and conversion. Lewis says, laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you're sorry, realizing you've been on the wrong track, and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor, that is the only way out of a hole. This process of surrender, this movement full speed astern, is what Christians call repentance. Now, repentance is no fun at all. It is something much harder than merely eating humble pie. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing off part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. In fact, it needs a good man to repent. But here comes the catch. Only a bad person needs to repent. Only a good person can repent perfectly. The worse you are, the more you need it, and the less you can do it. The only person who could do it perfectly would be a perfect person, and he would not need it. Remember this repentance, this willing submission to humiliation and a kind of death is not something God demands of you before he will take you back and which he could let you off of if he chose. It's simply a description of what going back to him is like. If you ask God to take you back without it, you're really asking him to let you go back without going back. It cannot happen. Very well, then we must go through with it, but the same badness which makes us need it makes us unable to do it. So can we do it if God helps us? Yes. But what do we mean when we talk of God helping us? We mean God putting into us a bit of himself, so to speak. He lends us a little of his reasoning powers, and that is how we think. He puts a little of his love into us, and that is how we love one another. When you teach a child writing, you hold its hand while it forms the letters. That is, it forms the letters because you are forming them. We love and reason because God loves and reasons and holds our hand while we do it. Now, if we had not fallen, that would all be plain sailing. But unfortunately, we now need God's help in order to do something which God in his own nature never does at all, to suffer, to surrender, to submit, to die. Nothing in God's nature 
corresponds to this process at all. It is the road that God has never walked. God's holiness prevents him from being in the presence of sin by definition. So the one road for which we now need God's leadership most of all is a road that God in his own nature has never walked. God can share only what he has. This thing in his own nature, this ability to surrender, suffer, submit, and die, he does not have. But supposing God became a man, suppose our human nature, which can suffer and die, was amalgamated with God's nature in one person, then that person could help us. He could surrender his will and suffer and die because he was man, and he could do it perfectly because he was God. You and I can go through this process only if God does it in us, but God can do it only if he becomes a man. Our attempts at this dying will succeed only if we men share in God's dying, just as our thinking can succeed only because it is a drop out of the ocean of his intelligence. But we cannot share God's dying unless God dies, and he cannot die except by being a man. That is the sense in which he pays our debt and suffers for us what he himself need not suffer at all. Now, I want to just pause there and say that is a passage that is worthy of some reflection and some chewing on because it is the absolute truth and it helps us to be able to get even just a little glimpse of what it meant for God to stoop to become a man, to take on our fragile mortality, to take on our propensity for sin, all of those things, and then for Jesus, fully God and fully man, to live that perfect life, and then to die on a cross made out of wood he had created on a hill that his hands had formed, to die for the sake of those who were crucifying him on that cross. If that doesn't, uh, as one of our priests said, light your fire, your wood is wet. And it is something we need to contemplate and give thanks to God for. So Lewis concludes with this section he calls a serious misunderstanding. I've heard some people complain that if Jesus was God as well as man, then his suffering and death lose all value in their eyes because it must have been so easy for him. Others may very rightly rebuke the ingratitude and ungraciousness of this objection. What staggers me is the misunderstanding it betrays. In one sense, of course, those who make it are right. They've even understated their own case. The perfect submission, the perfect suffering, the perfect death were not only easier to Jesus because he was God, but were possible only because he was God. But surely that is a very odd reason for not accepting them. The teacher is able to form the letters for the child because the teacher is grown up and knows how to write. That, of course, makes it easier for the teacher, and only because it is easier for him can he help the child. If it rejected him because it's easy for grown-ups, 
and waited to learn writing from another child who could not write itself and so had no unfair advantage, it would not get on very quickly. If I'm drowning in a rapid river, a man who still has one foot on the bank may give me a hand which saves my life. Ought I to shout back between my gasps? No, it's not fair. You have an advantage. You're keeping one foot on the bank. The advantage, call it unfair if you like, is the only reason why he can be of any use to me. To what will you look for help if you will not look to that which is stronger than yourself? Such is my own way of looking at what Christians call the atonement. But remember, this is only one more picture. Do not mistake it for the thing itself. And if it does not help you, drop it. And part of what Lewis is getting at here is that the atonement, when we begin to understand it, should make us break in awe and wonder and gratitude and fall on our knees. And it is no accident that most Christian churches, particularly the older ones, have crosses as the thing that your eyes focus on when you come into the church. All the architecture, everything focuses you toward that cross because it is the central miracle of Christianity that God became a man and then died on that cross for the sins of the whole world. It is a remarkable, glorious thing that should humble us and cause us to uh, want to sing praises to God, because absent God's having chosen to do this, we would be lost in our sins. And it's great that we are encountering this chapter in the week before Ash Wednesday in the season of Lent. Those of you that are not from a liturgical tradition, um, the season of Lent is a season of penitence and repentance, where we, for 40 days leading up to Easter, focus uh, not only on our own sinfulness, but on Jesus's work on the cross, Jesus's defeating of Satan in the desert during the temptation. And we have a lot of worship resources that help us um, to be able to focus in, because it is only when we appreciate the wonder of what Christ did on the cross that the joy of the resurrection can resonate with us. So even if you are not in a liturgical church, I would suggest to you that you might check out some Lenten resources. I will put some of those in the email um, because I believe they will bless you. We live in a culture that is becoming increasingly blind and deaf to the wonder of who Jesus is and what he did for us. And the more that we can recover that sense of wonder, not only will we be much more motivated to share that good news with those that we encounter, but we will experience that much more joy in our own lives. We tend to think that joy comes from the circumstances that we're experiencing in our lives. But the truth that the scripture proclaims over and over is that joy comes from considering who God is and what he has done for us. And that when our hearts are turned toward worshiping him, that is where joy is found. So let's conclude with this passage uh, that's at the end of Mere Christianity, which speaks to the same idea 
that counterintuitive and glorious idea from the gospel that it is only by death of submission that you are able to find real life. Let's say this together. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body and the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the amazing miracle of your incarnation, of your perfect sinless life, of your obedience to death, death on the cross, opening your arms wide on the hard wood of the cross, that the whole world might come within the reach of your saving embrace. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to appreciate and to stand in awe and wonder at the foot of the cross, seeing you the perfect penitent, the one who has opened the gates of heaven and salvation, the one who has enabled us to walk even in this world in eternal life because we know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for this chapter. We thank you for this book. We pray that you would use it to draw us more and more and more into the wonder of your kingdom. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.